0: Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning to worship together. I want to thank my brother for um, his prayer at the beginning of the service. It encapsulated a lot of what we've been feeling corporately, but also took us to the Word and took us to God's grand redemptive plan that has to guide our hearts during these days. So thanks to Esteban for that, and thanks to Iris also for reading our portion today, which is John chapter 1. I'm going to keep my, do my best to keep my thoughts concise today, and um, it's, it's okay that I do that because John has a lot to say as a book, but it also is summarized nicely in the prologue, the beginning of John, the first 18 verses. So that's where we're going to be today. I don't have to say everything about the prologue. Books and books and books have been written about it, but I'm going to say some things to set us up for the remainder of this series Um, entitled Loved and Sent. Before we jump into John, I want to tell you a little story. A few years ago, I was every day, repeatedly, entering the Alexander Hamilton Musical Lottery. This lottery, if you win, you get two tickets, 10 bucks each, to great seats downtown to see Alexander Hamilton, the musical. I had been doing it steadily, day after day after day, sometimes multiple times a day. Well, I'd never won. I knew other people that had, who had won, but I had never won. But I kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. Well, it turned out that one day, um, Jorge and I, he was still there. He was still here at that time. Jorge and I had a meeting planned, and this meeting went long. Not Jorge's fault, not my fault. It was just one of those good, long meetings that sometimes you just got to have. Well, when I got out, I saw that there was an email notification from Alexander Hamilton, not personally, but from Ticketmaster, whoever was running the lottery. They said, you have won your two tickets to Alexander Hamilton. I start celebrating right there in Jorge's office. Then I remember the fact that when you win the lottery, you're notified by email and you have to respond and claim your tickets within an hour of that email notification. Jorge's meeting with me was a good, long meeting, and I missed that invitation. I mourned missing that invitation, but alas, I missed that invitation. Why do I begin that story, a story that brings me a lot of pain, let me tell you? Why do we begin with that story to introduce John? Because of this. John, if you want to summarize the book, is an invitation to life. It is an invitation to life, and I don't want us to miss it. John does not want you to miss it. The Holy Spirit does not want me to miss it. And so as we go into this series that's going to cover 15 weeks, take us into the middle of September, we want to accept daily, weekly, this invitation to life through the book of John. Let's not miss it. John is the latest of the four Gospels. John wrote it most likely as an old man, somewhere between 70 and 90 AD. He was in Ephesus, and he writes to, we're not exactly sure who, but it seems likely that it's a mixture of Jews and Greeks, perhaps churches that consisted of Jews and Greeks, perhaps just people that were seeking God, maybe proselytes who had trend, who had Um, committed to Judaism but then were seeking how to be true Jews in Jesus. In in John 20 30-31 he gives the clear purpose statement of this book. He writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, John is a personal invitation to life. It's used to evangelize, to share the good news to those that do not yet know it. It's an invitation to seekers to believe. It is meant to encourage, an invitation to know life as individual churches, to believe in Jesus as true Jews, as truly the people of God who have come to faith in Christ, the children of Abraham. It's also an invitation to remain in belief, a discipleship invitation, and to grow in the, in the Christ life that all of us who know him are walking in daily. When it comes down to it, just as he says this, it's, these are written so that you may believe this is a personal invitation to you. This week as I've been getting ready, I've been praying Even as it's become harder and harder for us to connect to the word, especially the preached word, through this video medium, I've been praying that God, through his spirit, would reach to you and say, open my word, take it and read, and that the spirit would stir us even though we're separated from each other right now. This is an invitation to us to live this summer. What was John doing in these first 18 verses, in this prologue? He was doing much like the first song in Alexander Hamilton, the musical, does. The first song in Alexander Hamilton is a prologue. It leads into the rest of the play. It introduces the characters and their roles. It gives you a lens for understanding the rest of the drama, and it projects presents the trajectory of the entire story. L- listen to this, these last lines in the first song of Alexander Hamilton. We fought with him. Me, I died for him. Me, I trusted him. Me, I loved him. And me, I'm the fool that shot him. These were the other characters revolving around the main character in the drama, and you're beginning to see in the prologue what the drama's gonna be about with all of these secondary characters. The prologue was established by Euripides in Greek plays about four to five hundred years before Christ. So John would have been well aware how the Greek dramas of those days, how the Greek playwrights would include prologues in their writings to help the people understand what was going to happen. So John employs his prologue in much the same way, giving theme, trajectory, and characters, giving us direction to explain the rest of the gospel. Listen, I don't have to tell you everything about the prologue today because we're going to repeatedly refer back to the prologue throughout these coming weeks. It sets the stage. It's the foundation for everything else that we're going to understand. I can't exhaust it. However, I want you to understand this. The prologue, like the full gospel, has its main character as one person, the Word. The main character is the Word. You can't mistake that there's any other main character in this entire gospel, but we also have to see the other characters that relate to the Word and how they relate to him. So who is this main character, the Word? Look at verses 1 through 4 with me to begin. Says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we have this, this hearkening back to Genesis 1, where God creates the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do it? He spoke it. And so John here is using this concept of the word, logos, all right? It was a a term that both Greeks and Jews understood back then. And there was this dude named Philo that was a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Greek-influenced Jew. And he talked a lot about what this logos meant. It was the order, the structure of the universe. But even though he knew his Old Testament, he didn't know Jesus, he didn't know that Logos was actually meant to be a person. And that is who John presents Word, the word as. What do we see about this Logos here? He was in the beginning. He was in the beginning, was the word. This is before all things. He is the one that is before everything that we experience. He was with God. He had a distinct relationship with the Father. When you read God here, you're going to see, think of the Father within the Trinity. That's who John is referring to. As we go throughout the book of John, it's interesting here. I'm not going to introduce the Father as a main character in the prologue, even though he's there, because as we go through John, I want you to notice something. Almost every time that the Father is referred to, he's referred to directly in relationship with the word. One of the main themes of John is trying to help us understand how the word is related specifically to the Father. So catch that. The word, was, the word was, was with God. The word was God. The most nuanced translation of that is this. What God was, the word was. Okay, My son Simeon, my son Isaiah, they are like me, but they are not me. They're not everything that I am. When we talk about the word, what the word was, God was. What God was, the word was. There is a sameness there in essence, but a difference in person. Again, John pointing to the Trinity here. All things were made through the word. Nothing was made without him. He, again, is the logos, the structure, the logic, the order of all things in creation. Yet again, he is the Logos elevated to this personal level, the the wisdom of God personified in the word. He then brings about light and darkness, again, hearkening back to the beginning of Genesis. I'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. But here's what John is doing here in these first few verses. He's giving a glimpse of what is happening behind the curtain, behind the scenes. Again, think of a drama with me. Think of Greek mythology from grade school when you would hear the stories about Zeus and Apollos and Mount Olympus and all these sorts of things where things are happening in the realm of the gods, but they are impacting people on earth, sometimes very tragically. Here, John is giving a glimpse behind the curtain, and he's saying, listen, listen, Before all time, there was the Father. There was the Son. Harkening back to the beginning of Genesis again, there was the Ruach, the Spirit that was hovering over the waters. The Trinity was together in relationship. Count on that from the beginning, predating anything that we're experiencing, including him writing here at the end of the first century. Who is the second character here? We have the main character as the word, but then we get these secondary characters. The witness. Look at verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. This is John the Baptist, not the Apostle John, that is writing this book. But this is John the baptizer, or we could call him today John the witness. What I want you to see is, what he's saying here is that what is behind the curtain has now been revealed. What was unseen is not seen. There's now seen. There's a witness to the word. A witness to the word. But he makes clear, John was not the light, but he witnessed To the light. Witness, as we're going to see throughout these weeks, is a key theme throughout the book of John. The verb for it, martyreo, occurs 33 times. And the noun for it occurs 14 times. All three other gospels use those words three or fewer times. We have to be on the lookout for these common themes as they stream through the book of John, and witness is a major one. Consider the idea of witness as this. If John was not the light, then what was he? He was a magnifying glass. Think with me. What does a magnifying glass typically do? Well, if you're using one, it's because you're trying to see something that's fuzzy more clearly, so you kind of adjust it, all right? you you need to see something you don't quite understand in a way that you can't understand and the, the magnifying glass is a tool in that that's what john was doing he was helping the people of israel understand a couple of things through this type of use he was helping them understand their sin the holiness of god and their sin that needed to be turned from repented of but here's what else he was doing he was not the light but he gave witness to the light because as a magnifying glass can also do, it can magnify and realize in a more focused way the power of the sun. Think of it. When you hold a magnifying glass up and you have a leaf on the ground, what can it do to that, to that leaf? Set it on fire. It's because... The sun hasn't become any more powerful. The magnifying glass itself is not powerful, but what it does is it shows that leaf and anybody else who's watching the true power of the sun in part. That leaf would not have burned on its own, but through the magnifying glass, the sun uses the magnifying glass to demonstrate its power to burn. John was the witness. Think about this, brothers and sisters. As John's witness helped focus the power of the Son, so should our witness be. Lord, help us in this. The next secondary character is is the world, verses 9 through 11. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What do we see about the world here? The true light has now come. Again, what was unseen is now seen. This light that gave light at the original creation is now coming in, spoken, sent to be a new light, an arrived light into the darkness of the world at present. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. What characterizes the world here? What characterizes the world? Well, let's talk about first what is John talking about because the world's a major theme in the gospel as well. He's talking about humanity and human affairs, all right? The reality that is, is he's not talking about the cosmos, like the earth, he's talking about the world, its people. It's systems. These are things that we're thinking a lot about today, Lord. What what do the systems of the world actually mean? If something is systemic, it is inhabited by people, by humans. That is what makes something systemic. Here, John is saying the true light came into the world with its humans, its human affairs, and its systems. As you go through the book of John, you'll hear him mention both Jews in a pejorative way. uh, A way that says, basically, these are so-called Jews, but not Jews as Jews are supposed to be. The Pharisees were on the rise ever since the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And they were even exerting their influence into Mediterranean cities where Jews and Greeks were trying to study, were trying to understand what it meant to follow Jesus through the synagogue system, oftentimes, And these Pharisees were persecuting them and pressing them in these places. So John is addressing the Jews, these so-called Jews, and also the Greeks. There's this understanding of all people within this world. Again, the light was coming into the world. This is what we would call the incarnation, when the word arrives in flesh. Here's the characterization of how the world treated the arrival of the true light. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He's specifically speaking here of the Jews. Can it be said more broadly? Yes, it can be. But on the first order here, he's talking about the very people that were his own, not just his created, but his covenant people from, from the beginning, from Genesis back with Abraham, all the way through the present, they did not receive him. They did not receive him. They rejected the life creator and now the life, the light bringer and they chose darkness over light. But even though he was writing to the Jews, let's not miss that application for ourselves and for our world. The light has come. The light has come. Why do we still choose to look for more lights? Why do we Push against the light as revealed in the word. The next character is the willed. Look at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Couldn't I have just said the next characters are children of God? yes. But sometimes I think as, as beautiful an identity as that is, we don't get the full reality of it. John speaks to it here. These children of God, we children of God, are not born of our own decision, of the decision of the flesh, the decision of our parents, whatever it may be. We are children of God purely out of the gracious will of the Father. He is the one who has chosen us To make us his children. And John gets right to the heart of the matter here. Those who are reborn, who God has by his will chosen to make make them his children. These people, it would be characterized in them because they will believe the word. They will receive the word. They will have a posture towards the word of, yes, we need the word. And this reality of being the willed, the loved, is a declaration of love, adoption, purposefully, intentionally, chosen to be loved by God. Hallelujah. How could we want anything more? How could we be satisfied with anything less? The next character here verses 14 through 18, is again the Word, but in this time the Word made flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. John the the witness bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God. The only God who was at the Father's side. Jesus Christ has made him known. The curtain is pulled back. The word, the light of life is Jesus Christ himself. John refers to him again as the word in 1 John 1, but in all the rest of his writings, it's always Jesus. It's always Jesus. He doesn't want us to get mixed up in some pseudo-philosophical meanderings. He wants us to know, he wanted his readers to know, you will find life. You will find life in Jesus Christ. And him alone, He is the word made flesh. When it says he dwelt among us, the word for that is tabernacles. As the, as the people of Israel found in the wilderness, the tabernacle was the tent of meeting where Moses went to meet with the Lord. Where the glory of God came down and, ju- and Moses was able to meet with him as with a friend. It says in Exodus 33, this reality is that Jesus now has come down in the flesh. What Moses asked for, but could only see in part, the reality that he could see the hem of his garment, but nothing more, no more of his glory, because if he had seen any more, he would die. Now the reality is the fullness of God, what God was, the word was, the fullness of God is now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We have a greater opportunity than Moses, brothers and sisters. We are truly witnesses. He dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This, again, goes back to Exodus 34, this reality of, of being full of grace and truth. When God showed Moses the hem of Of his garment, the the back of himself, what was declared for Moses to hear was this God, abounding in covenant love and covenant faithfulness, covenant love and covenant faithfulness, those can also be translations of this reality of full of grace and truth. God is full of covenant love, covenant faithfulness. He will not abandon you, He will not cause you more daddy issues. Jesus Christ came, word made flesh, the son of God, so that you and I could become children of God. The son of man, so that son of men, sons of men, could know God again. This this is the climactic statement, perhaps, of the entire Bible here. Christ came full of grace and truth. Again, this is a personal invitation to you and to me. You may say, I don't think I know this, Jesus. Can I just say, you're invited to? You're invited to. To have a new beginning. In the beginning was the word. Today may be your new beginning. Would you consider the reality of turning from your sin, the sin that Jesus came to kill through his arrival on the earth, And then he died and rose again so that you could walk in newness of life. This is an invitation to a new beginning for you. Ah, There's much longing expressed around us today, isn't there? Longing for justice, change, healing. Oh, Lord, have mercy. But here's the thing. All longings will ultimately fail us if they're not ultimately found in God. This is the longing of the human soul, the ultimate longing of every created soul to see God, to know God, to to understand the Father in his fullness. And that's available to us through Jesus Christ. There's a final group of characters here. You may have seen them. I've been using alliteration with W all the way through. I was thankful for that. The last group of characters is this, the we. The we, you see the we in verse 16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Christ, full of grace and full of truth. Christ, full of covenant love and covenant faithfulness. Christ, who is full of all these things, has showered these things on those who are willed to be loved. We are willed to be loved, Christian. What does this mean, grace upon grace? It takes us back to Exodus thirty-three, thirteen. Again, this is an accumulation of grace. Hear what Moses says. As he's praying to the Lord, he says, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, that I may continue to find favor in your sight and see that this nation is your people. Moses was longing for favor in God's sight, but he didn't just want to say, You know what? Found favor. God gave me favor. Saw the backside of God. I'm good. No, he said this. I not only need that favor, I ask for more. I ask for more of you, God. I need more of your presence. I need me to show you your way. I want to actually know you. You hear the longing of that in Moses, that he didn't know the fullness of God in Christ. He wasn't able to yet. We are able to. Can I just, can I say that again? We are able to. In a way that Moses was not able to, we are able to. Will you believe that today? Have you stopped believing that? Have you stopped believing that? Not in a belief where you are like, Christ is not my Lord and King anymore, but in a way that says, I long for fullness of life, for eternal life, that emanates from me in this life before I die and then continues even after. See, for the, one, for the one, as we'll talk about later in John chapter 11, for the one that God has saved who has become his, he will never die, as Jesus tells Mary and Martha. You will never die. That's true for us. We will die, our bodies will die but we will never actually fully die. What hope? Have you stopped believing this? Would you, would you ask the Spirit to revive your heart this morning, this summer? Would you engage in summer with the Word? Be reading the Word as we send out that schedule, even this afternoon to your email. Would you print it out and say, I am going to get into the Word. Okay, so you, maybe you don't like a schedule so much. You'll see on there also the sermon schedule for every Sunday now through September 13th. At least, at least read those sermons. If you want to add a little bit more in your understanding of John and his theology, read through the rest of John. Read through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Read Revelation. The, the lightning, the fireworks from the Spirit will go off in your heart and mind as you commit to reading the Word this summer. You will know life through the Word pointing to the word. I encourage you to do that. Consider that and, and do it. Don't just consider it. By God's grace, do it. All right, let me, just, let me just wrap up by saying this. We have to think on where are we here, June 7th, 2020, as the willed and the loved, the we, the church. This is the definition of the church, people, that God by his will brought together children for himself through the finished work of christ where are we what role do we have in the drama the unfolding drama of redemption right now let me just let me just present to you this arc really quickly we have the starting point of the arc at genesis 1 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was formless and void and the spirit hovered over the waters Then you have, after that, the reality on the other end of the spectrum, Jesus returning, the word returning in Revelation chapter 21. And what does John say when he sees him returning? He sees the new heavens and the new earth coming down. He sees that the temple is no more, for the dwelling place of God is with man. And God and the Lamb are the temple. beginning of all creation the reconciling the redemption of all creation and then in the middle this new creation made possible by the incarnation of christ he came to earth as the light to shine light into darkness that people that receive him would know him and be transformed into new creations that is who we are Children of God if we are in Christ. And new creations. So what does that mean for us? We are in between the middle creation and the last creation. New creations going towards that new creation in which we can believe the promise that Jesus is making all things new. Does that mean that everything is on a trajectory like our world is continually evolving? No. Read the rest of Revelation to understand that. This world has fallen It will be remade after the day of judgment. However, God, like a gardener, is working. He is making all things new. And like I heard Andrew Peterson say last night, sometimes it takes the gardener a lot of work, a lot of pruning, and time and time and time before that garden actually fleshes out into being the garden that he envisions. That is what Jesus is doing We'll talk about that more in John 15. Jesus being the vine, us the branches, and the Father as the gardener. Wow, can you just read John, please? All right, let me, um, let me finish this up here. Where are we in this drama? We are in these three creations. Creation always brings light into darkness. We have been experiencing, as you know, so much darkness around us. And if you're really honest with yourself, so much darkness in you trying to figure out what it means to live faithfully in these, li- in these days. But the Logos always brings order to chaos. He always helps us to understand with wisdom the world around us because he is the light that shines in the darkness. And though the darkness has not understood it, we are children of light, according to 1 John. We understand it. Oh, Holy Spirit, give us greater understanding of the logos, of the word, of Jesus himself. Help us to understand our primary identity as those who are willed and loved, those who are adopted. Help us to understand the identity of our brothers and sisters, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of political party. Listen, people, if we really understand the core identity of who we are, Nicodemus, And Joseph, the the religious leaders, can be in league with, in unity with Paul and John and Peter because they know the Christ one. They are on an equal footing as children of God by his will, fully loved. Listen, Christ is our personal invitation to life, and we as his witnesses are personal invitations to others. We are loved by God, and we are sent by God. We'll we'll flesh that out more as we move along. Let me just say this as a a word to the church really quickly here. How does that look as a body when we are living between this creation and that creation? Well, there are a lot of ways to answer that, but let me just bring it super clearly to us right now. Number one is, as John so frequently talks about the unity of the church— We have an opportunity tomorrow night from 6 o'clock until 8 o'clock to specifically join with other churches, mostly Rogers Park churches. They're hosting a march, a peaceful march, mourning the loss of African-American lives unjustly, but also crying out for the peace of the city. Both of those things together. Crying out to the Lord for mercy. Tomorrow night, Monday night, from 6 o'clock until 8 o'clock, meeting at Willie White Park, there at Howard and roughly the Red Line, and then walking to Warren Park at Pratt and Western. That's available to you. We're not going to be taking church vans there unless somebody lets me know and they're like, I don't have a ride, can we really take a church van there? That's just an opportunity for us as a church to walk with other churches united in Christ for the sake of God pouring out his mercy on us. We don't put our trust in marches. However, this is a way for us to communally lament a commun- the communal sin of racism, all right? That's an opportunity for us to do. But let me add this. We need to be meeting again. Mayor Lightfoot put out an announcement Friday night at about 7.30 that churches in Chicago could meet at 25% capacity or 50 or less, whichever, whichever is a lower number. For us, that would be 50 or less. The elders are meeting this Wednesday night and we desire to be meeting as soon as possible where it can be for the good of those of you who said, yes, I'll return immediately and also considering those of you who would not return immediately. In that way, we are considering one another, loving one another. Could that happen by next Sunday? I hope so. There's a lot to figure out. I hope so. If not, at the very latest, I'm hoping two Sundays from then. Pray for us. We have a lot to think about, a lot to plan for. We, we need to think through these things, not just with our own logistical gifts, if we have them, but just with understanding what the Spirit wants us to do in leading us. Listen, with all the stuff that's going around us today, the divisions and the tensions, we need to be a Protestant church, a protest church that says, we protest in love, saying we're going to gather together and call out to the king of all kings and say, Lord, meet us. Meet our city. Renew us. Make more and more people yours. Brothers and sisters, may we be a magnifying glass this week that invites people to the drama of the gospel of John, the drama of Jesus' redemptive plan? Would he use us individually and corporately to see the focus of the the power of the son focused in Edgewater, in your families, at your jobs, on your blocks? Would he use us in ways that we can't expect because we are simply tools and he will use us as he will, but let us be open and available? This is the prologue. There's lots more to come. These are going to be some great weeks together. Thanks, everybody. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you. Pray that you would do anything in us that you need to do this summer, that you would revive us, that you would refine us, that you would draw more and more people in to know you, those who are sons and daughters of yours, that you are calling in but don't even know that yet. Lord, send forth your spirit. May he testify along with your bride that you are the light of the world, that there is water for the thirsty to drink, and you, Lord Jesus, are that water. We desire for you to be known. Be more and more known in our lives. We pray this in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.